Episode 54, Plowed. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a May 7th, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. In 1927, a farmer in Plains, Kansas, invented a revolutionary type of plow. Equipped with rolling discs, it could quickly till more land and required less fuel. By all accounts, the plow worked well, maybe a little too well. Join Museum Director Bob Kekeisen and me as we examine the plow that many claim led to the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Did this armchair engineer really mastermind one of the greatest climatological events of the 20th century? Or was he just a handy farmer that got a bad rap? I'm a fire starter, fire starter. Later, on Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a small-town Kansas newspaper editor, to the Dalai Lama, a global religious leader that has theoretically been around since the 14th century. Did White attempt to achieve enlightenment on a Himalayan mountaintop? But first, plowed. Good afternoon, Bob. Good afternoon, Bob. Today we're going to discuss what is, uh, surprisingly, one of the more controversial objects in the collection, the angel plow. Uh, This green steel plow from the 1920s features eight massive steel discs that are mounted on on an axle, just one gang. Um, And before we get to why it's controversial, Bob, I wanted to just take a moment to um, kind of set up the background to the plow. Sure. So this, like I said, this piece of farm machinery machinery is known as the angel plow, but it doesn't really look like what we would typically think of as a plow. What is the traditional function of a plow, and how did this one advance that technology? Okay. Well, first, I I wanted to thank you for asking me to do this interview since um, I did not grow up on a farm. I, you know, when you tell people you're from Kansas and they assume you grew up on a farm, and I, I grew up in a city, so I grew up in Wichita, so I'm a city kid. So, mm-hmm. and I in Kansas, bring, you don't get much more city no, than Wichita. No, much, no, biggest city in the state, and so I had to uh, bring my finely honed skills as a historian uh, to uh, do some research on the plow. But uh, you're right, even I know it doesn't look like a traditional plow, but you know, a, a plow basically is a farm implement that's used in cultivation. It's used in the in- initial cultivation of the soil to prepare it for sowing seeds or for planting. It's been one of the most basic uh, farming implements for centuries. And basically, when you plow a field, you turn over the upper layer of the soil to bring fresh soil and nutrients to the surface. And it also can bury the weeds and grass and previous crops or whatever else that might have been on the land. So when you think of a plow as turning the soil over, when you look at the angel plow, it really looks much more like what most people would call a harrow. And harrows are discs that were, were are dragged over the surface of a previously plowed field um, to cultivate the surface and help smooth out the rougher plowed area to make it easier to seed. But this really is a plow in that the, the angel plow advanced the technology by not plowing as deeply as you know, traditional, uh, like the old mold board plows would have. Uh, it allowed farmers to cover some more acres in less time. But uh, so 
I think if he showed a picture of the angel plow to most farmers, they'd say, it, oh, it's a, it's a disc harrow, but it, it really is a plow. Mm-hmm. It's like this. It's like the moldboard, but it's a moldboard that can be. Um, it's like a wheel, you know. Yeah, it, it kind of uh, reinvents itself as it right. goes over. That's not it's, the word I wanted, but yeah, it, it basically uh, makes it continuous plowing motion. And and most of the blades or the discs on the one way, and that's why it's called an angel one way plow, were set in the same direction. Mm-hmm. So they they uh, plowed the surface into even furrows. But as I said, it, it just didn't go quite as deep as a traditional plow. So it mainly messed with the topsoil. The angel plow is highly innovative in its design, like we were talking about. Mm-hmm. It reduced draft and allowed for a wider width. Yeah. Why were these qualities so interesting to farmers in the 1920s? Why did it take off when it well, did? Obviously, wider you know, lets you cover more ground. And following the First World War, um, wheat prices were going up. Uh, you had to, you know, during the First World War and immediately after, you had to feed the world. You know, there was the old win the war with wheat campaign. And so uh, farmers in Kansas put a lot more acreage uh, into production, into wheat farming. And this simply allowed you to cover that much more ground that faster because it was um, so much wider. You could cover more. Um, it also was faster than the old moldboard plows because it didn't go as deep. And it handled the heavy stubble of a previously uh, grown field pretty well. Uh, you know, a lot of the soil out in western Kansas can get hard packed and hard baked in the sun. And the angel plow was really good at cutting through that sun-baked soil. Um, and it was uh, pretty good at destroying whatever weeds that were in the in the topsoil there. So, And also an issue that I think people would even find significant today, because it's pulled behind a tractor, right? While yeah. the disc allowed you to use a lot less fuel. Exactly. Um, and it was a lot more efficient. So, and it was less wear and tear on your tractor as well. Yeah, so there, there's, a, there's a lot of things to recommend this for wheat farming in western Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles Angel designed and manufactured these plows on his farm in Meade County, which amazes me that this guy was, like, manufacturing plows on his farm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Meade County, that's near the Oklahoma Panhandle. Um, he didn't necessarily invent the concept of the disc plow because I think some others had sort of played around with it before. Mm-hmm. But he refined it, and he was and he was really sort of the first to market it at, market the design. Mm-hmm. Um, who was Angel, and did he become a corporate tycoon like Cyrus McCormick? Well, uh, he didn't never really got the corporate tycoon. Uh uh, standing that some of the people like McCormick did. But Angel uh, was a wheat farmer out in Plains, Kansas. And as you mentioned, that's southwest Kansas. It's just uh, northeast of Liberal. So, yeah, down there by the Oklahoma Panhandle. And he had always had a special knack for machines and machinery. They, they uh, have said that as a kid, he used to take apart uh, his family's appliances, take them apart and put them back together. And you know, kind of one of those, you know, kids that has to know how something works. So, you know, take it apart, look at it, put it back together. I'm sure that caused his parents no end of joy. Uh, but um, so he was really mechanically inclined. And when he came up with this idea to refine a disc plow, uh, became pretty successful, and he built close to 500 of these on his Meade County farm. So that's pretty impressive right there that he's building, you know, 500 of these uh, contraptions. That is impressive because they're not light. Yeah. I mean, and, that's heavy metal. And that's a lot of material to get in mm-hmm. and out of uh, Plains, Kansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he ends up building 500 of these things. But he never really reached, you know, the, the tycoon or the corporate status because he sold the rights to his plow to the Ohio Cultivator Company. So he kind of went for the, you know, one-shot sale there and got money from Ohio Cultivator and, you know, let the people that are in manufacturing 
take care of it because, you know, he is a farmer. So later on, some other companies produced similar machines based on his design, and it really became widely used on the southern plains, so not just in southwest Kansas or in western Kansas, uh, throughout the southern plains. Um, the Angel one-way plow really became uh, heavily used throughout the region. And uh, he, like the good inventor that he is, he um, took a patent out on the design, and I believe he trademarked the name one-way plow. Okay, so, that, you know, that I did not know. See, <laughs> so when he—I mean—that's the stuff that, yeah, mm-hmm. that's what he was selling to the uh, to the cultivator company was the name and the. And the design. That's how a good inventor does know, it, really. you know? Just cover all your Don't bases. get bogged down no, in the just manufacturing. <laughs> just the design. Just move on to the next big thing. Right? Yeah. All right, Bob. So now we move on to the big question. Uh-oh. Many question. claim that this plow um, was responsible for causing the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Not necessarily okay. this exact plow that's yeah. in our gallery, no, no, but no, no. this design, the Angel Plow, was responsible for causing the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Can you explain the logic to this theory and tell if it's tell us if it's true or not? Okay. Well, first off, it's probably not true. Well, actually, I can say it's it's not true that the plow alone was responsible. Not only just our plow in the collections, but the Angel One Way or One Way plows in general, you know, weren't alone responsible for the Dust Bowl. No one factor was. But the One Way plow is believed by many historians to have played a role in helping uh, bring about the conditions that caused the Dust Bowl. Um, you know, we, we talked about the angel one-way being called the one-way because they're vertical disks mounted on the same axle, and therefore they move the soil just in one direction. And we also mentioned earlier that it really just disturbs the topsoil. Now, it did a good job of breaking up stubble and working the stubble into the topsoil, but it really also pretty much pulverized the topsoil because traditionally farmers had seen stubble in their fields as a nuisance to get rid of by plowing it under, you know, again, that more deep plowing, uh, or to burn it off. Well, Angel saw a way to use the stubble to the advantage of the dryland farmer, which is a lot of the farming out in southwest Kansas, dryland farming. So instead of completely burying the stubble by plowing it, the one way worked the stubble into the upper layer of the topsoil. But as I mentioned, it pretty much pulverizes that upper layer of the topsoil, so the ground was much more susceptible to blowing. Well, you, you combine that pulverized topsoil with the drought that happened in the 1930s and the high winds that come along in the 1930s, uh, the overproduction, there was a lot of um, uh, acreage being plowed up by these one-way plows. So you kind of put all those things together and it's kind of, you know, not to use an overused phrase, but the perfect storm, you know, of farming techniques, drought, high winds, um, many acres under production, and it just um, all went together into the creating the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Mm -hmm. This particular plow had a special purpose on the Angel family farm. Um, It may not have been out there causing the Dust Bowl. What what was its special purpose? No, it would be cool if we had the plow that caused the Dust Bowl. The plow that, that, that actually that broke would the really plains. Be cool, but right, yeah. yeah. But uh, no, the angel plow that we have here in the museum collections and that will be on exhibit until January of 2009 in the special exhibit Forces of Nature. And as I snuck that little plug nice, for the exhibit in there. Nice segue. Now I don't uh, have to do that at the end. Yeah, so but... Um, But the Angel One-Way Plow that we have in the collection is on exhibit in our main gallery uh, throughout the year when it's not in the Forces of Nature exhibit, so visitors to the museum can see it any time that they come to the Kansas Museum of History. But it's not the typical field plow that Angel designed. Um, 
Charles Angel's initial design for the one-way plow had the plow being 10 feet wide. Well, when you look at our plow, it's obviously not 10 feet wide, it's four feet wide. So you're thinking, well, why would you make a scaled down version of this? Well, that's exactly what he did. In, in 1926, Angel built this four foot model as opposed to the 10 foot model, and it was used in his family's vegetable garden. Oh, so this is like his vegetable garden. This is wow. like the family Angel one way plow. Oh, so. But, you know, so this even is the four plow, foot plow that broke the garden. Right. Ah, yes. <laughs> but not my garden. I mean, you know, you'd have to have a pretty substantial garden to put a four foot plow in. Yeah. I mean, to require know, a yeah. one way disc with a tractor. Yeah. You're not talking a couple of rows of beans and cucumbers here. I mean, that, that's probably a pretty substantial uh, garden. But but then again, look at this plow as a four foot and imagine it, you know, two and a half times bigger. And mm-hmm. that's the traditional field plow that was used. I like the idea that a devastating natural disaster can be easily blamed on a piece of equipment. Yeah. Um, so in that vein, I thought maybe we could refine that process a little bit. I'll give you the dis- the disaster, okay, um, Bob, and you tell me the inanimate object that caused it. Okay. For example, what caused Vesuvius to erupt and destroy the cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum? I would say uh, a forgetful Roman left the toaster on. That's an example. Okay. <laughs> so we'll go with the first one. What uh, what caused the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, Bob? Okay. Well, I'm still trying to get my head around the ancient Roman. And what, <laughs> what was that, like 80, 80, 79 or 80? I'm so leaving this toaster plugged in, but no, no, I don't know. Yeah. San Francisco earthquake, okay. Um, I'm going to go with cable cars. Um, you know, everyone thinks they're quaint. Everyone thinks they're just a great tourist attraction. Oh, go to San Francisco, ride the cable cars. But when you think that you're out there on this big fault and they're digging trenches and dragging cables through them, uh, yeah, I think, you know. Triggered something. Uh, chain triggered reaction. Something, chain reaction, you know. So I think, you know, All next time you're in cars. San Francisco hanging off the side of a car, keep that in mind. You uh, might be contributing to an earthquake. Yeah. yeah. The next, Yeah. yeah. Um, the Iranian blizzard of 1972. Were you familiar with this natural disaster, Bob? Well, no. I See, I didn't think it was a natural disaster. I, I thought this was actually a very unsuccessful treat at Dairy Queen in the early 1970s. You know, there's not a lot of people lining up to buy the Iranian blizzard. Uh, I think it was made with falafel and ice cream. But uh, So Iranian blizzard is a dessert yeah, at Dairy it's, Queen? It's more of a, more of a dessert than a, than a natural disaster. But, All right. Um, it went over about as well as Crystal Pepsi. But, uh, I liked Crystal Pepsi. It wasn't around for long. Well, you may have liked the Iranian blizzard, too. I don't know. Uh, What caused the explosion of the Hindenburg blimp in 1937? Well, see, this is where things come full circle because uh, I think you can blame the Angel Plow for the explosion of the Hindenburg as well. I mean, look at the time frame. 1930s, right there, 1937, not long after the Dust Bowl. It makes sense to me that some enterprising New Jersey tomato farmer Comes to Southwest Kansas, meets Charles Angel, says, wow, look at this great plow. Takes his plow, goes back to New Jersey, maybe right there in the Lakehurst area. He's plowing, hits a rock, spark, boom, up to the Hindenburg, thing blows up. Uh, well, you know, I mean, historians I mean, Bob, historians discount that, but, you know, prove it didn't happen. That is amazing. Yeah. I know that there's a lot of conspiracy theories associated that's, with the Hindenburg. I, that's what I'm going with. I don't know if anybody stumbled on this one I'm, yet. I'm starting it. That's that's yeah. good. Yeah. All right, finally, Bob, what what inanimate object can be blamed for the disappearance of the Roanoke colony of 1587? Well, I'm not sure I'd go with inanimate object. Well, the first inanimate object that would come to mind that I think most historians buy into is the the generally accepted theory of uh, space alien abduction. Yeah, yeah, you know, just came down spaceship. <laughs> 
Well, you really packaged that like you were going to tell me some really some history lesson. No, well, I think the true history lesson here is I'm not sure it's so sure it's an inanimate object. In fact, I think it's um, people are just playing an elaborate game of hide and seek that got out of hand, and nobody ever found them. And you know, I wouldn't surprise me if the descendants of the Roanoke Colony probably get together every year, you know, have a convention, sit around, have a few drinks, and have a good laugh that nobody's ever figured this out. So it was just an intense game of hide and seek that never got wrapped up. Never got wrapped up, right. Wow. All right, Bob. Well, thanks for telling us um, some of the causes of of natural disasters. And thanks for telling us about Angel's Plow. It's been my pleasure. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Alla White. Joining me today is Assistant Registrar Nikhila Zimmerman. Hello. And Public Information Officer and new uh, member to the panel, (laughs) Teresa Jenkins. Thank you. Hello. Uh, We'll get to this week's challenge in just a minute. But first, we have some listener feedback, and we wanted something for Teresa to do. So, (laughs) Teresa, if you would like to read uh, our feedback. Thank you for the opportunity. (laughs) We received this comment from a chaplain who's in the United States Navy, currently stationed in Naples, Italy. He wrote to tell us... Thanks so much for the cool things. The music is excellent. I listen to it as I do the morning workout. You are right after the morning intel report. (laughs) My daughter turned me on to the podcast and to the Funston segment. It was used lots in our preparing for the bird flu training this last year. I hail from Iola, and my wife is from Burn, Kansas. All right. So he's like a Kansas native. Um, I appreciate a couple things in there. The (laughs) fact that he likes the music. He's got good taste. (laughs) Um, little concerned about using our segment on the Funston flu, <laughs> on the flu epidemic of 1918, um, as a basis for the training, um, for the bird flu training. I mean, it's good. It just, it's a lot of pressure on us to... Maybe we need to be more careful about <laughs> how we record these. I like how we rank right below the Intel report. Yeah. That's very exciting. Now we're global. I mean, uh, somebody in Naples, Italy is listening to us. Uh, now back to this week's challenge, which was to connect William Allen White, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist from Emporia, Kansas, to the Dalai Lama, the spiritual leader of the Buddhist religion, which I don't know, they don't really like when you call it a religion, I think, but um, spiritual leader, leader of Buddhism and political leader of the exiled Tibetan government. Um, Nikayla, could you give us a little background on the Dalai Lama? Not just this iteration, but all the Dalai Lamas. <laughs> all the Dalai Lamas? Okay, well... The Dalai Lama is the traditional governmental ruler and high priest of the Lamas religion in Tibet and Mongolia. The person is believed to be the current incarnation of a long line of Buddhist masters. Um, they're so enlightened that they no longer go through the cycle of death and rebirth, and they have chosen to, of their own free will to be reborn of this plane to teach humanity. The first Dalai Lama reigned from 1391 to 1474. He was actually the third Dalai Lama, but he was the first one to officially be called a Dalai Lama. Um, The current Lama's reign began in 1935, and the name itself means Ocean of Wisdom or Ocean Teacher, meaning that they um, are spiritually as deep as the ocean. Nice. So just to be clear, the the continuous incarnation, I say this only because it's relevant to my solution, but um, the <laughs> Dalai Lama, it's essentially the same, the same spirit transferred one, from one body to another. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because when the Dalai Lama dies, there's a period where the soul of the, of the previous Dalai Lama goes out to find its next, basically, you know, next host. 
Um, so there's a little while where there's not a Dalai Lama, and all of a sudden he, he appears. And he appears. Um, it's a kid. Mm-hmm. It's like a young kid that starts out. So that's why when you look at the list of Dalai Lamas, it's not really that long. Because yeah, these the people reign. They reign yeah. for like 80 years. Because they start out when they're like a six-year-old kid. <laughs> it's amazing. I have a six-year-old. That's scary. Yeah, and he would be the leader of a country. Not quite. <laughs> okay. So, Nikayla, um, let's start with your solution. Okay. Well, currently we're on the 14th Dalai Lama, but the previous Dalai Lama, the 13th Dalai Lama, was known for being a skillful politician <clears throat> when Tibet was caught up in a power struggle between Imperial Russia, China, and the British Empire. This happened around the turn of the 20th century. Um, well, it actually lasted a lot longer than that, but um, the struggle was known as the Great Game, and basically it started around 1813 and ran until 1907. Um, in 1901, Rudyard Kipling made The Great Game the subject of his novel, Kim. And when Kipling married in 1892, the expatriate American novelist Henry James gave the bride away. Uh-oh. Oh. I and, know Henry James. That's taking us a little bit closer. Uh-huh. And in 1909, Henry James spent an enjoyable afternoon at his house in Sussex, England, entertaining William Allen White. Uh-huh. And William Allen White described that um, visit as one of the lovely experiences of that gorgeous summer. Wow. So there you go. So Henry James, the rather thick, <laughs> thick thickly uh, difficult to read writer. Uh, yeah. That's interesting that they're kind of like polar opposites. Like Henry James is like real hard to understand and real hard to read. And William Alloway is like that was his goal was to be, you Readable. know, the folksy, I'm just your average kind of guy. Yeah. But apparently they got along quite well. So. All right. So how many degrees is that? Uh, that's like five. Okay. Okay, good try. Now it's my turn. (laughs) So try to keep up with me because I kind of feel like this could be the most convoluted and the most complicated of the six degrees of William Allen Whites that I've done. Okay, in Buddhism, the Dalai Lama has a traditional second in command. He would be the second highest ranking monk, monk, and he's known as the the Penshen Lama. Um, And it's the Penshen Lama is sort of based off of the same incarnation system that's used uh, for the Dalai Lama. So it's often a small child that's, that's picked as the second in command. Well, after the death of the 10th Penshen Lama in 1989, the Dalai Lama recognized a new Penshen Lama, a six-year-old boy. Um, but the Chinese government, who has always had a very... Uh, it's been a rough relationship between them and the Dalai Lama. They rejected the Dalai Lama's appointment, and they picked their own guy, their own kid. Um, and that was based on a complex selection process, process which involved a golden urn and barley balls. Um, not sure how that worked. But uh, that whole precedence was based on a 1793 precedence set by uh, the Qing. Well, I mean, that's kind of the same thing as China. The Qing emperor... Xin Lung. Um, so he's the Xin, he's Xin Lung, the Qing Emperor of China. In 1933, William Allen White and his wife Sally traveled through China. While there, they picked up three porcelain figurines that are in the house today. You can actually go see these. And one of the figurines is of Xin Lung, the wow. Qing Emperor who set the precedence, who made it possible for the Chinese government to house the <laughs> six-year-old boy, put their own boy in. <laughs> Goodness. Which that six-year-old boy has actually never been found, the original one. It's real weird. Yeah. There's a whole you go on the internet and there's a campaign to find this kid. So what I want to know is would it be possible for us to use a golden urn and barley balls to select our next president? 
Because really, at this point, it may be easier. I mean, at least to decide Clinton or Obama. Well, I don't know about. I don't know if we could influence that, but we could certainly use the <laughs> golden urn and barley, ball, barley balls to maybe pick our next topic for six degrees away. Oh, okay. Okay. We'll do that at the end of the show. I don't know where you get barley balls. <laughs> I don't even know where you get a golden urn. Surely we've got one in the collection somewhere. Maybe. We know beer is made of barley. So if we and take a golden, golden urn, urn. <laughs> I'm sure there are some people who are using that to make their selection for president. We don't endorse that. So really, all we need to do is go to like the Blind Tiger or somewhere and have a beer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I like it. <laughs> well, my solution is a little less complicated. You know, if you're going to try to memorize one of these to dazzle someone at a cocktail party, <laughs> mine might be a little easier to memorize, but not nearly as, as interesting. Uh, we know that the Dalai Lama went to Peking in 1954 to meet with Mao Zedong and other Chinese leaders. Well, back in 1929, Mao had met with Kansas City Star correspondent Edgar Snow. He was the first American to interview Mao. Wow. The wow. star was where William Allen White began his career as an editorial writer in 1892. Nicely that done. That is impressive. And definitely much easier to memorize. That <laughs> is much easier. That's really good. Hey, it's not bad for my first time. <laughs> pretty impressive. All right. Uh, well, that will do it for the Dalai Lama. Uh, we've really kind of uh, fleshed him out. Um, <laughs> Teresa, would you like to issue the challenge for our next episode? My pleasure. For the next challenge, we intend to blow your mind. We <laughs> want to connect William Allen White to the atom bomb. Right. So if you think you know a way to connect William Allen White to the atom bomb, just send us a message uh, to podcasts at kshs.org. And that is podcast with an S. You're the fire starter. fire starter. That concludes episode 54, Plowed. If you'd like to actually see the plow that potentially broke the planes, you can by visiting Forces of Nature, an exhibit at the Kansas Historical Society in Topeka, or by going to our website, kshs.org. Come back in two weeks when Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin discusses a fire stick. The name sounds glamorous but it's essentially an aluminum pipe pulled behind a four-wheeler. Its function is far more interesting, though. The device is used to intentionally start fires that burn hundreds of acres. Not only is this good conservation, but people are even willing to pay good money to help start the fires. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. 